As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. 11 of the nation's largest banks are stepping in to rescue First Republic Bank. We'll talk about that extraordinary effort to reassure Americans that the U.S. banking system is safe. Plus, Poland is set to become the first country to send fighter jets to Ukraine. It comes amid new reporting that China's leader will visit Russia next week. Those new developments are also straight ahead. And Donald Trump goes off on a frenzied defense amid a series of investigations. We'll have the latest on the probes involving the former president. Good morning and welcome to Way Too Early on this Friday, March 17th. Happy St. Patrick's Day. I'm John Flamere. Thanks for starting your day with us. In the words of CNBC, Wall Street rides to the rescue. Eleven of the country's largest banks are depositing a total of $30 billion to First Republic Bank to avoid a third collapse of a U.S. bank in less than a week. First Republic serves a similar clientele as Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, both of which failed in recent days. Those banks had a high number of uninsured deposits, as did First Republic, leading to concern that customers would pull their money out. Now, the Biden administration says it helped broker a deal to rescue the California-based bank. In a joint statement, officials write this, the show of support by a group of large banks demonstrates the resilience of the banking system. The move sends a message to global markets that the U.S. financial system is secure. Amid the -the behind-the-scenes work to rescue First National Bank, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen testified before the Senate Finance Committee. The hearing was supposed to be on the president's proposed budget for fiscal year 2024, but Yellen also faced a series of questions on the health of the U.S. banking system. I can reassure the members of the committee that our banking system is sound and that Americans can feel confident that their deposits will be there when they need them. Clearly, the downfall of the bank, the reason it had to be closed, was that it couldn't meet depositors' um, depositors' withdrawal requests. Because their capital was, being, uh, was losing value and they were not able to access their capital, and, and I attribute that to the interest rate hikes that we are seeing in, in the face of the inflation. Am I wrong in that? Well, my understanding is that the bank, um, to meet liquidity needs, had to sell um, assets that it expected to hold to maturity. And um, given the interest rate increases that have occurred since those assets, including treasuries and government-backed um, security, mortgage-backed securities, they had lost market value. All right, yeah. and we're on the same page on that then. I appreciate that. Yellen also testified that not raising the debt ceiling later this year would be devastating to the banking sector. Joining us now to help break this down, business and policy reporter for The New York Times, Lauren Hirsch. Lauren, great to see you again. Um, 
busy day in the banking world yesterday. Uh, tell us where things ended up as the dust settles. It was crazy 24 hours covering it, and I think for basically everyone involved. The whole thing was put together in about 48 hours. Jamie Dimon, the CEO of J.P. Morgan, was down in D.C. for work anyway uh, this week. You had the Treasury, FDIC, and Fed all working together to create this public-private partnership we haven't really seen in, in decades in terms of coming together for the banks. Uh, as of 24 hours ago, they didn't even have enough money to to put in as much as they want. Jamie Dimon was literally hitting the phones, trying to get people to put the money in. And by end of the day yesterday, they had a deal. Uh, but as we saw last night, shares of First Republic after first spiking on news of the deal fell when they announced that they uh, were cutting their dividend. So I think this was a nice band-aid. It's still unclear if it's going to be enough. So is the sense now that First Republic is stabilized or could there be further issues in the days ahead? I think short-term emergency, to the extent there was an emergency, yes. You know, one of the things that people keep stressing to me is First Republic wasn't necessarily facing a liquidity crisis. It was probably fine, probably had enough money to cover its deposits. The problem was its shares kept sinking, and that was sending a terrible message to the market at large. And at a certain point, it wouldn't have been fine. So they wanted to step in before it got there. So First Republic doesn't have an immediate problem, it seems, but... I don't know that they're out of the woods yet. And one of the things that I keep hearing from my sources is whether or not, you know, they still explore a capital raise, a sale to further shore things up. This was as much about sending a message to the market as it was saving First Republic. Yeah, and sending a message was clearly what Treasury Secretary Yellen was trying to do yesterday, too, trying to reassure the market, but also Americans writ large that, hey, the banking system here is still going to be okay. But it's just noted, this is the third bank in just a little more than a week uh, that has faced real trouble. Mm-hmm. Is there a sense that there are other banks in a similar situation? Are there more storm clouds on the horizon? Listen, Credit Suisse over in Europe is in a world of pain right now. The government stepped in there. People are not convinced it's going to be enough. There's a lot of talk about whether or not there will be some sort of deal broker, you know, most likely between UBS and Credit Suisse. A lot of people I was talking to last night said if that issue isn't resolved, at least as it pertains to Europe, it could spark wider paint. And again, I don't want to spark any more concern than there needs to be, but it's definitely, I would say people are definitely on edge watching things unfold. Yeah, and we'll be discussing this more later in the show with our friends from CNBC. We greatly appreciate your analysis this morning. Business and policy reporter for the New York Times, Lauren Hirsch. I'm sure we will speak to you again very soon. Moving on to other headlines now, former President Donald Trump is unleashing a furious and frenzied defense to major new developments in two separate investigations against him. The president, the former president, turned to his social media platform to take on Michael Cohen a day after his one-time personal attorney and fixer testified before a grand jury convened by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office investigating hush money paid to adult film star Stormy Daniels. Trump also blasted Emily Kors, who you'll recall is the foreperson of the special grand jury that investigated Trump in Fulton County, Georgia, for election interference in that state. In an online post attacking the pair, Trump tried to paint both Cohen and Kors as inappropriate and lacking credibility, a sign of possible defense strategy that Team Trump may attempt if indeed indictments are filed in one or both of those cases in the weeks ahead. But the former president did not stop there. Later, he appeared to test out another strategy, the weaponization of the justice system by his political opponents to try to stop his 2024 White House bid. In another post on Truth Social, the former president claimed that one of the lawyers working in the Manhattan DA's office 
was placed there by the Justice Department and Attorney General Merrick Garland to lead the, quote, persecution against him. As usual, Trump provided no evidence for his accusations. But wait, there's more. Senior advisor to former President Trump and legal counsel Boris Epstein provided NBC News with a statement regarding both the New York and Fulton County, Georgia investigations. His statement invokes allegations of the weaponization of the justice system by, quote, woke radical DAs in New York and Atlanta. The statement also reads in part this, President Trump will not be deterred and will always continue to fight for the American people. Along those same lines, there was yet another statement later in the evening by the Trump campaign, which blasted the Democrats and the DOJ. Meanwhile, and yet another investigation into Trump, the New York attorney general is now urging a state judge to reject Trump's bid to delay her civil fraud case against him. Remember, this is separate from what the Manhattan DA's office is doing. In a filing from Wednesday, Letitia James stated that Trump might use his campaign as an excuse to further delay the matter. The judge has scheduled a hearing for March 21st, that's next week, to consider the trial schedule. Last September, James sued Trump, three of his adult children, the Trump Organization and others, following a three-year investigation. The $250 million lawsuit alleges a decade-long scheme to to manipulate Trump's net worth to win better terms from banks and insurers. Lawyers for the defendants did not immediately respond to requests for comment. They should just check Truth Social. Trump has called James's case a partisan witch hunt. Meanwhile, former Vice President Mike Pence appears to be toning down his comments about Trump in January 6th. Remember that at the annual Gridiron Club dinner in Washington this past Saturday, Pence said history will hold Trump accountable for the Capitol riot. Pence was asked about those remarks during an interview on Fox Business yesterday. Take a look. This is the toughest statement you've made. Uh, Any particular reason why you made it last Saturday? Any particular uh, thing on your mind? Well, Larry, I've I've read that it's it's the toughest statement I've made, but it's essentially what I said in my book. It's essentially what I've been saying around the country for the last year and a half. Look, you you know me well. I'm a I'm a I'm a look out the windshield guy, not a rearview mirror guy. But frankly, while the president and I parted amicably at the end of the administration after that tragic day in January, uh, ever since he returned to the rhetoric he was using uh, leading up to January 6th, uh, I, I've been speaking out. I, I, I had no right to overturn the election. No vice president in American history has ever asserted that right. Do you think um, former President Trump incited violence or incited an insurrection? Well, look, there was a riot at the Capitol that day, and there were many causes. I, I do think that the president's reckless words that day uh, endangered uh, all of us that were at the Capitol. When I say my family, you know, my wife and my daughter were with me all the way until four in the morning the following day. Uh, but thanks to law enforcement, uh, we quelled the riot. Uh, we were able to reconvene the Congress the very same day and complete our work under the Constitution of the United States. But I'll let history be the judge of those matters, and the American people can each have their own opinions. Striking, isn't it, how Pence's words are much tougher when he's off camera? Still ahead here on Way Too Early, Poland is set to become the first NATO member to send fighter jets to Ukraine. 
what that move could mean for other allies aiding the war-torn country. Plus, the Senate takes a first step toward repealing the legal authorizations for the war in Iraq. We'll go over the significance of that. Those stories, a check on sports and weather, and so much more when we come right back. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Jen Psaki. Have you ever seen the House this dysfunctional? Rachel Maddow. If winning the election is his plan to stay out of prison, what happens in that election if and when he does not win it? Mondays, back to back. Talk about the stakes of this back and forth, given Trump's behavior. What do you make of the statement from Hamas? Why they're doing it? What, what do you think it means? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9 p.m. Eastern, Mondays on MSNBC. Welcome back. We've got breaking news overnight. Chinese President Xi Jinping will visit Russia next week. We've learned that Xi is expected to hold talks with President Vladimir Putin in a meeting that could have broad implications for the ongoing war in Ukraine. According to China's foreign ministry, the state visit will take place from Monday to Wednesday. And it comes against the backdrop of renewed questions around whether China is helping Russia's war effort. Politico is reporting that Chinese companies, including one connected to the government in Beijing, have sent Russian entities 1,000 assault rifles and other equipment that could be used for military purposes, including drone parts and body armor. NBC News has not confirmed this report. Xi's visit comes at a moment where the U.S. has been sounding alarms for a while that China may be indeed sending lethal weapons to Moscow to help its war effort. We will be watching this potentially pivotal development in the war next week. This week, another turning point surrounding Russia's invasion in Ukraine. Poland has announced it will provide jets to Kyiv, making it the first member of NATO to do so. Poland's president announced the move late yesterday and said that the four MiG-29 fighter jets will arrive in Ukraine within the next few days. Shortly afterwards, NSC spokesperson John Kirby acknowledged Poland's decision, but added that the United States' position on sending jets to Ukraine has not changed. We have not done so to this point. The situation continues to develop in Ukraine's east, where the majority of the war's fighting is taking place. Ukraine's military provided an update yesterday claiming that Russia carried out assaults in five different cities, including Bakhmut. Throughout the day, Russia launched at least 16 airstrikes, two missile strikes, and 25 separate attacks from rocket salvo systems. Yesterday also marked one year since Russia attacked a theater in Mariupol with hundreds of people inside at the time, many of them children. To recognize the one-year mark since that horrific attack, a candlelit vigil was held in Ukraine's capital to remember the hundreds of innocent civilians who were killed. 
Meanwhile, in Washington, ahead of the 20th anniversary of the Iraq War, the Senate voted yesterday to advance a bill that would repeal the 1991 Gulf War and the 2002 Iraq War military authorizations. The Senate opened debate on the legislation with a vote of 68 to 27, with 19 Republicans joining all of the Democratic caucus. Two co-sponsors of the bill, Senators Tim Kaine and Todd Young, spoke on the importance of the legislation. Members of the Senate just did something today that we haven't done in decades, begin a standalone debate about the repeal of a war authorization. The last time we've had a standalone debate on a matter that, that warrants a full debate and full attention has been probably since long before I was born. It is time. It is time for Congress to have its voice heard on these matters, and and, uh, I believe this will establish a very important precedent moving forward so that the people I represent and Senator Kane and and so many others represent know uh, that their voice will matter when it comes to important decisions of war and peace. The bill is expected to be taken up the chamber for a final vote next week. President Biden has signaled his support for the legislation. Still ahead here and way too early, March Madness is barely underway and most brackets are already busted, including President Biden's. We'll take a look at two major upsets that took place yesterday. We'll be right back with that. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Former President Donald Trump is facing 91 indictment charges, yet he remains the Republican frontrunner. On MSNBC's podcast, Prosecuting Donald Trump, veteran prosecutors Andrew Weissman and Mary McCord break down the biggest legal developments and how they could alter the election. Never had a president who engaged in this kind of conduct who's running for office. He is using the criminal cases for his own campaigning. Search for Prosecuting Donald Trump wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Tuesday. The Cavaliers are playing with four guards, and the four guards out there, along with Shedrick, are their best free throw shooters. Clark in a straight check. Oh, he didn't need to do that. He threw it away. Hing, Pagese. Clark will inbound. 2.4. They added a little bit of time. It's Beekman. Good if it goes. Thurman is one. One possession game. Arizona needs three to send this thing to overtime. You don't have to jack a three, though. Get a quick two if you can. 15 seconds left. Ramey, one ball. That's not it. Air ball. That's not it. Ballo tries to keep it alive. Kreesaw, no good. Princeton's going to win this thing. Arizona with a prayer that will not go. And the Tigers of Princeton growl their way. Brackets busted. Those were the two major upsets yesterday in the first round of the NCAA men's basketball tournament. In just the second game of the day, number 13 Furman stunned fourth seed of Virginia with that game-winning three-pointer in the final seconds that gave the Paladins their second-ever tournament 
victory and first since 1974. Bonus, if you know what a paladin is, my brother, UVA grad, heartbroken this morning. Later, number 15, Princeton earned its first tournament win in 25 years. Shocking second-seeded Arizona in a 59-55 upset. Eddie Glaude Jr. smiling somewhere. In some other surprises, number eight, Maryland, wiped out a double-digit deficit in yesterday's opener, rallying to survive number nine, West Virginia. One of the most popular upset picks, number 10, Utah State, could not pull it off against seven seed of Missouri, which led nearly the entire way. Number nine, Auburn, earned a date against top-seeded Houston with a victory over number eight, Iowa. And 10th-seeded Penn State rolled over number seven, Texas A&M. If your bracket is busted just halfway through the first round, you are certainly not alone. After yesterday's contest concluded, the March Madness Twitter account posted that only 787 brackets of unspecified millions remained perfect. In ESPN's tournament challenge, only 658 perfect brackets remained, with 20 million getting at least one of the 16 games wrong. And at Yahoo Sports, only 23 perfect brackets still survived. According to NCAA.com, the longest verifiable streak of correct picks to start the tournament is the is 49, 49, chosen by an Ohio man back in 2019. So here's a look at where things stand right now. The madness resumes this afternoon. There is your bracket. I will say my final four remains intact for the moment. Time now for the weather, and let's go to meteorologist Bill Karens for the forecast. Bill. Is your bracket busted? Uh, I'm good. I, I, I had Arizona. You know, they lost, but I only had them in the Sweet 16, so that's good. But the NCAA tournament always delivers, right? Yeah. Like, we didn't get the buzzer beater, but we had the big, huge ups. Yeah, the college basketball regular season seems to have slipped a little bit in significance yes. throughout the sporting landscape, but March Madness, still good. Yeah, so yeah, hopefully today we'll get that buzzer beater too. So let's get into this St. Patrick's Day forecast. We had some severe weather, some scary scenes near Fort Worth last night with some tornado warnings. We had huge hail in Oklahoma, Texas. That has ended, but we still have these thunderstorms that are rolling down. They're going to head for you, uh, especially in the New Orleans area, Mobile, Pensacola, Panama City during the day today. And we get the soaking rain in northern Alabama. That'll head over Atlanta too. So isolated severe storms later today, especially along the I-10 corridor here, the northern Gulf. I don't think we're going to get too many tornadoes. And how about your St. Patrick's Day forecast? we got some parade action going on today, too. So we have that rainy weather heading through the Ohio Valley here. Specifically, some of the parade forecast in New York today. You know, clouds will roll in, but very mild. should be dry, 50 to 58, no problem at all. Boston, the parade is on Sunday, and it's going to be breezy and chilly, 34 to 38 in Savannah. Oh, what a time it is in Savannah on St. Patrick's Day. Been there once, 64 to 76 degrees today. Kansas City, San Francisco, uh, just fine today. And tomorrow, the parade in San Antonio, about 48 to 52. So uh, overall, the weekend and the weather quieting down. It looks pretty good for a lot of people. Bill Cairns, thank you. Happy St. Patrick's Day. We both have our green ties. It's mandatory. Still ahead, President Biden is demanding that TikTok's Chinese owners sell its stake in the app or face a possible ban in the United States. We'll have the latest on the administration's ultimatum next on Way to Earth. Welcome back to Way Too Early. It's 5.30 a.m. on the East Coast, 2.30 out West on the St. Patrick's Day. I'm Jonathan Lemire. Thanks for being with us. The Biden administration is increasing pressure on TikTok, demanding that its Chinese parent company sell its stake in the app or face serious consequences. NBC News White House correspondent Kristen Welker has the very latest. 
A dramatic ultimatum from the Biden administration to the Chinese owners of the hugely popular app TikTok. Sell your shares in the company or face a possible ban of the app in the U.S., a source close to the company tells NBC News. It comes after bipartisan pressure on the White House to take action against the app, which has 100 million monthly users, from students to small businesses. The fear? The FBI warns the Chinese government has stolen more of Americans' personal and corporate data than any other country. And experts say TikTok could be giving them access to American users' information, including contacts and calendars, location, and could allow them to target people with specific videos. One third of Americans get their news from TikTok every single day. One sixth of American youth say they're constantly on TikTok. That's a that's a loaded gun, Congressman. TikTok is responding, writing in part, if protecting national security is the objective, divestment doesn't solve the problem, saying they are already implementing robust third-party monitoring. The Chinese government saying the U.S. hasn't been able to prove with evidence that TikTok threatens U.S. national security. Former President Trump had pursued a TikTok ban in 2020, but was blocked in federal court. Now the Biden administration threatening a similar move, a major shift in policy amid mounting tensions with China. Does the president think that Americans should be on TikTok? What I can speak to is what the president believes that he needs to do, which is making sure that the safety and privacy of Americans are protected. Joining us now, White House correspondent for Politico and co-author of The Playbook, Eugene Daniels. He is also a Morning Joe senior contributor and more of an Instagram Reels guy. Eugene, great to see you this morning. Uh, So what is the latest here on the Hill? Are lawmakers from both sides of the aisle in agreement with the White House on this issue? Could we be seeing a nationwide TikTok ban in the office? Yeah, it's possible. It's possible. Yes, I'm very much an Instagram Reels guy. I'm too old to be on TikTok. Mm -hmm. Um, But they have, um, this has kind of been the push from Capitol Hill, right? This is this wasn't actually, um, and when you talk to the White House over the last couple of years, this wasn't something they were looking to do, right? Um, they weren't telling us that this was something that President Biden wanted to do. Um, as a matter of fact, I did a story in December of 2021 where um, on the digital team at the White House, and they were focusing on TikTok. They had President Biden in TikTok videos with the Jonas Brothers, if you remember that, to, to get um, people to um, get COVID vaccines. So they were thinking about using it in the way that some people do use TikTok. But on the Hill, Republicans and Democrats are kind of holding hands. Anything that's kind of anti-China gets a lot of support on Capitol Hill and and in Washington, D.C. But um, TikTok has been negotiating with this small group or large group of of organizations called CFIS. It's um, Departments of Treasury, Justice, Homeland Security, Defense, Commerce, um, and to try to figure out what they could do to continue to operate in the United States, despite the security concerns, despite the privacy concerns, um, at this point, there's no um, evidence that we've seen, you know, as reporters, that the Chinese government has actually access to TikTok user data. But it's obviously the concern that folks have. Um, President Biden signed a bill last year that would block that blocked um, TikTok from government phones. And so after that, the question became very clearly, 
if it's, if you guys can't use it, why should the um, the American people use it? And why should they feel that it's safe to be on there? And this is kind of what we're working on. Um, t- over there, working on the TikTok um, has worked done this project Texas, um, which basically tries to assuage some of those fears. It involves storing some of the personal data um, with a U.S. cloud giant. It's called Oracle. So there's things that have been happening behind the scenes, but obviously this new um, ramp up is is as tensions are very high, as Kristen said. So, Eugene, let's switch gears for a second here. There's been uh, some reporting of late, including on Politico today, about a few steps that President Biden has recently taken sort of towards the center uh, and sort of risking alienating some of the left part of the party. That includes on the D.C. crime bill, which he eventually opposed, uh, this authorization to do more drilling uh, in Alaska, going back on a campaign promise to not to not do so. Um, and the speculation that they may institute some Trump-era border policies there to, to curb the flow of migrants across uh, into the United States. Uh, what are you hearing in terms of what, how upset the left is about this? Is there any chance this could fuel a bit of a rebellion against the West Wing? Yeah, fabulous story by you and our colleague Danielle, oh, Danielle yeah. Diaz up on the site today. <laughs> Just someone named John from the mirror. Um, but it is, you know, that's true. That is something that has um, been bubbling up for a while. There's been a concern from the left since the since President Biden walked into the Oval Office that this was something that was going to happen, that they were going to, um, they weren't going to see the left-wing president that they wanted. And, you know, when you talk to White House aides, what they say is President Biden was never, you know, a, a, a left-wing populist type of person. But he has passed a lot of bills. Um, and the, the White House had created a relationship with progressives in the in in Congress, especially, um, and kind of calmed them down, saying, "Look at the things we're passing. A lot of this is what you want, especially on climate change, where there's so much fervor and concern about um, what's going to happen in the future, what that actually looks like." And so, it is possible as President Biden kind of um, looks at uh, announcing some kind of um, non, um, decision on his run for re-election um, in the coming months, that you're going to have a bunch of these people more upset, right? And saying that these reasons he's making these decisions you just outlined is because of the fact that he has a re-election bid. So there is some concern, even from folks in the White House, though, though they won't say it on the record, that that, that is going to be an issue for them running into this re-election. All right. Great stuff, as always, from Politico's Eugene Daniels. Thank you, my friend. Have a great weekend. Still ahead here on Way Too Early, we're going to go live to CNBC for an early look at what's driving markets as investors grow optimistic on hints of relief for some major banks amid the industry's ongoing crisis. Way Too Early. We'll be right back. Time now for business. And for that, let's bring in CNBC's Arabile Goumede, live from London. Arabile, good morning. Investors looking ahead to the Federal Reserve's meeting next week to see how the central bank will proceed in its fight against inflation. What should we expect? Yeah, so look, it was initially a 50 basis point hike that was anticipated, right? That was on the back of inflationary data showing to be continually hot. Even the jobs numbers really still uh, surpassing expectations. Then clearly the economy is still uh, being able to pump out jobs in a sense, right? So that 50 basis point was initially anticipated. Then we got the strain and the stress uh, that uh, Silicon Valley Bank introduced into the market, then having failed, of course, having had to be bought out by HSBC here Mm -hmm. in Europe. 
Europe, and of course regulators having to put in that backstop out in the United States. So that meant too much strain and stress on the banking sector. So looking at a 25 basis point hike instead was what the market would be pointing towards. So that seems to be the clear message now, that perhaps a 25 basis point hike is anticipated. The continued help for the banking sector, including the likes of Credit Suisse, which of course have suffered quite extensively of late, does mean that the uh, banking sector may find some relief. So maybe they might even revert back to that. Who knows, really, at this point, I think they're going to have to posture between the two. So, yeah, we talked about the turmoil at Credit Suisse earlier in the show, but shares from the bank surged after the Swiss central bank agreed to loan Credit Suisse $54 billion to bolster confidence in the country's second largest lender. Uh, Tell us how things look uh, on this Friday as the dust settles. Yeah, so the dust perhaps settling just a little bit. I mean, yesterday even reaching its lowest point with that share price, right? Uh, And really 18% uh, up then eventually on the day. So really some positivity filtering back through into Credit Suisse then. This is going to be quite interesting to note, however. Do they continue to get uh, themselves back up as they continue to restructure the business as much as possible? The Swiss National Bank getting involved in this does mean that they're in the last chance saloon. However, the uh, Saudis who have have invested in Credit Suisse have said that uh, the worries around Credit Suisse are perhaps just a little too uh, overpronounced at this stage. So maybe too much that people are worrying about and not really too much cause for concern. So right now that share price is still up around 3% as well, so faring a little bit better. But they always say that the proof of the pudding is in the eating. So we'll have to see what happens next. Mm, pudding. Uh, Arabile, uh, briefly, last question. The, pre- the price of YouTube TV is increasing from $65 a month to 73 a month starting next month. What prompted the price hike from Google? Yeah, so this is a very weird one, right? It's an $8 increase on on YouTube TV. I mean, I'm not sure how many people really, I mean, you ever used YouTube TV really, John? I have not. So a fairly interesting one. Uh, But in December, YouTube TV did sign those rights uh, to the NFL Sunday ticket package. So that is costing them quite a lot of money, $2 billion per year that they've now passed on to the consumer. So they're trying to get a lot more content flowing into YouTube TV that's a heavy cost. So unfortunately, consumers are going to have to bear it. Yeah, and you're right. The move of the NFL Sunday ticket from DirecTV to YouTube TV, that's what may get people like me to start watching it. CNBC's Arabile Gumede, live from London. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Still ahead, we're going to turn to the brewing battle over President Biden's proposed budget plan. Congressman Seth Magaziner joins me to talk about it next on Way Too Early. Let's turn now to look at Axios AM and senior politics reporter for Axios, Eugene Scott is here. Eugene, thanks for joining us a little early this morning. What is the Axios One Big Thing Today? Good morning. Well, the Axios One Big Thing Today is that according to recent Axios and Ipsos polling uh, coming out today, one in five Americans supports the concept of a national divorce. You may recall a few weeks ago, uh, Georgia Republican Marjorie Taylor Greene has floated the idea uh, that Republican states and liberal states should be separated because of their uh, values and worldviews. Now, uh, you can look at this two ways. Uh, 20% it's not a large percentage, a large enough percentage, should we say, to actually see this idea get any traction. But 20% is 66 million people. That's more people than most countries in the world and about 15 states here in the U.S. So, uh, you know, potato, potato. 
Yeah, I mean, it's one out of every five people and certainly shows, even if there's no real possibility of a national divorce happening, but shows just the unhappiness and just how stratified and polarized this country is, which sets a pretty toxic backdrop for our next presidential election. I'm sad to yeah. say. Um, Eugene, let's switch gears here. We talked about this briefly earlier in the show. On Capitol Hill yesterday, the Senate advanced a bill repealing two Iraq war power acts as lawmakers work to reassort, reassert their authority in military intervention abroad. And, you know, for so long, Congress has almost ceded uh, this exclusively to the executive branch, to the presidency. So what are some implications? Talk to us about what has to happen next. And then what implications might this move have? Well, one of the big implications is that this could mean that there is less executive power uh, regarding this type of thing. You know, there is there's less support in general on the right and the left uh, for for war. And there's a belief that this authorization has been overused most recently in 2020 by the Trump administration uh, to kill a, a, a general in Iraq. And so uh, what we are waiting on next is to see whether or not House Speaker Kevin McCarthy will move uh, this bill forward. It's, it's quite popular with some of the uh, lawmakers in the most right uh, sections of the GOP, and we'll see what type of influence they have on him. Yeah, President Biden, of course, as a senator, debated uh, this, the merits of this very uh, decision, uh, but he has signaled that he'll, he'll sign this if it reaches his desk. Um, Eugene Axios uh, is also highlighting a focus group, which shows that some Wisconsin swing voters don't feel like their TikTok time is a national security risk. And we just spoke to Eugene Daniels a few minutes ago about how there seems to be real momentum right now in Washington to potentially ban this app because its its owners are Beijing-based. Uh, tell us about what you found, though, in Wisconsin. Awesome. Well, we know that a focus group is not the same thing as a poll. It's not scientific, but it's not worth being ignored, as anyone in uh, the White House will tell you. And these voters in particular in Wisconsin, a swing state, are voters who backed Trump in 2016 and backed Biden in 2020. And they fear banning TikTok is government overreach. They feel like the government has not yet proven that TikTok is a national security risk. Uh, and they fear that this ban could lead the government to uh, ban more organizations, more companies uh, from China and beyond uh, on social media without proving to Americans why this is necessary. All right. Senior politics reporter for Axios, Eugene Scott. Thank you. As always, we'll talk to you again next week. Hey, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening? Evangelical pastor and director of Vote Common Good, Doug Padgett, on the rise of Christian nationalism and what's at stake in this year's election. We lack a story in this country about what our politics are supposed to achieve. And when we suggest to them that the common good can be your voting identity, rather than being Republican or being a Democrat or being fiscally this or that, big government or small government, but you care about the common good, people are like, oh yeah, that, that I actually care about. That's this week on Why Is This Happening. Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and subscribe.